The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mysteries of life. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, joining you from the lands of the Lekwungen speaking peoples, the Songhees, and the Esquimalt First Nations, recently known as Victoria, BC, Canada. My guest today is Jen Lumenlon, host of the popular podcast, Your Parenting Mojo, and author of the book, Parenting Beyond Power, How to Use Connection and Collaboration to Transform Your Family and the World. After attending Berkeley and Yale and following a traditional career path in sustainability consulting, Jen found that parenting was her toughest challenge yet. She went back to school for a master's degree in psychology, focusing on child development and another master's degree, another one, my friends, two of them. The other one is in education. And then she trained as a coactive coach to share what she learned with other parents. In the book, she shares about her own struggles as a child and um, just a content warning here for bereavement and discussion of disordered eating. And for my listeners who are people of the global majority, um, BIPOC folks, the book is written from the perspective of a white parent grappling with unlearning the use of dominance and, and other even more subtle aspects of white supremacy culture, subtle to white people probably only, um, In this conversation, it does take a minute for us to get around to stating explicitly that white parents do not have the same concerns as parents who are black or indigenous or Asian or of other oppressed identities. And I want to assure you that we do get around to it in the conversation, stating that explicitly, but also that it is front and center throughout the book, and it is handled with a lot of nuance. It's an excellent book for folks who are actively seeking or maybe even just starting to be curious about how to dismantle systems of oppression and unhook from supremacy culture and just kind of the casual everyday use and like naturalization of dominance and coercion at the family level and relational level. There's some great tips and scripts in this episode that I'm sure you'll find helpful. And near the end of the show, Jen will share how you can get her book through a gift economy approach, sometimes called like a pay what you can price. I hope you enjoyed the episode. And now here's Jen. So Jen, what identities do you lead with? I've thought about that question for longer than I thought was reasonable. (laughs) And I don't know. I find it a really hard question to answer. I mean, I can, I can give the standard answer. Um, I now having done a lot of work in this field, I really think of myself as a white woman. I present to the world as a white woman. I am English originally, and that very much is linked to how I view the world, how I show up in the world. I'm a parent. I'm also autistic. I learned in the last 18 months in the course of doing a podcast episode on neurodivergence, I found out that it applies to me too. (laughs) Um, But I, yeah, I do, I do wonder about how much kind of getting attached to those identities makes things harder for us. Sometimes it explains things about us and sometimes getting attached to things makes things harder for us. So yeah, so those are just some, some words that describe me. Awesome. 
Yeah, 100% agree. Thank you. And, you mm -hmm. know, on this show, we've had people identify in every way you can think of, including as compost heaps, as riparian ecosystems, like we are wildly <laughs> open to fluctuations in identity here, but also like really broad expansions of what we would conventionally think of as identity. So, and uh, certainly a lot of listeners are late diagnosed autistics. So um, if they couldn't tell in reading your book or chatting with you, it, that's kind of nice to feel affirmed and validated, you know, because maybe that's also a thing that can feel good for folks. It's like, I wonder if they're autistic. It's just nice. Well, yeah, actually, I, I did have some listeners reach out who were like, yeah, I knew you were autistic a year ago. <laughs> yeah, I know. I when like, you okay. mentioned it in the email, I was like, no, I could tell in the book. What do you mean? You can <laughs> I was like, but that whole first like chapter what are we talking about here? anyway so but in a sweet way where I'm like oh yeah no this sounds like a lot of my clients right like I could yeah for sure I I was like no I I know a lot of later life diagnosed um and women identified people who were like oh I was always told this or that or I couldn't be because I didn't present this way so yeah I think it's yeah. super helpful so mm -hmm. okay so you have a background in coactive coaching and it takes a real problem-solving approach um and what you're describing in your book is this problem-solving approach to parenting that as I was reading it, I was like, this sounds a lot like NVC. So nonviolent communication. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So for <laughs> listeners who are new to nonviolent uh, communication, Marshall Rosenberg wrote a gate book, had a major body of work around this, um, but it isn't known for being something that you would use with children necessarily. So, yeah. and one of the things that if somebody goes and Googles right now, want to learn about NVC is they're going to see a lot of internet discourse about how NVC can, you know, many people with oppressed identities feel that it can be weaponized um, pretty easily because it doesn't really directly address power and rank and privilege, but your book, Parenting Beyond Power, is, is very much about that. So did you study NVC in your work, and um, how, how did that influence the book that you ended up writing? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's definitely fully there, and and I credit Marshall Rosenberg and Inval Kashtan as well, who I think was probably the first person I'm aware of who started using it with children. Um, she unfortunately passed away several years ago, and uh, so I, I think you know my my just to sort of back up a little bit, the book is called Parenting Beyond Power, and I it's it's a book about parenting, but it's not your traditional book about parenting. <laughs> I have yet to find another parenting book that discusses social for of white supremacy, patriarchy, capitalism <laughs> in the same book as we're talking about parenting. And, and then the sort of what to do with it is based heavily in NVC. So I didn't make any of this stuff up, right? It draws heavily on bell hooks, on other thinkers and on Marshall Rosenberg's book. And I think this is just a sort of a marrying together of ideas that uh, I haven't seen anywhere else. And so, uh, so yeah, so I, I see that these, these social forces are out there and 100% agree with those critics that uh, inherently, NVC can be weaponized, right? It is possible to use it in a way that says, well, you're not doing it right. And uh, and only the ideas that we can arrive at rationally are valid and you're being too emotional right now. <laughs> <laughs> and when you can uh, tell me your needs on a rational basis, then I will be able to engage with you. <laughs> so yes, I think we absolutely can use it in that way. Obviously that would kind of go against the 
point of it, one book that I really love is Mindachi's book, Decolonizing NBC, and they really use the idea of connecting with your body, which I think is so important, right? In our, in our white supremacist, patriarchal, capitalist culture, we're kind of taught that anything that happens in your brain is useful, and it's valid, and it's important, and anything that happens from the neck down is irrelevant at best and just a waste of time like why why would you even bother paying attention the instructions come from your head they go to your body your body does what it's told and when instead we can see that our bodies are really useful sources of information right i work with a lot of parents who feel triggered by their child's behavior and they tell me it comes out of nowhere right this feeling comes out of nowhere and i'm like Actually, it kind of doesn't, right? Earlier in the day, when your child asked you to get the green spoon instead of the blue one, you noticed something in your body. And maybe you didn't notice it because you've been trained not to notice it, but it was there. And it was trying to say, ah, something about this isn't right. Tense shoulders, a little bit of a headache, tightness in the chest, whatever it was. And those signals kind of build up and build up. And, and so, you know, we can learn to pay attention to those so that these responses don't just come out of nowhere um and so i think that so yes those criticisms are there and it's really kind of our responsibility as parents as you know i identify as white as a white person who has more power in a white supremacist culture to use these tools in a way that works us towards dismantling these systems rather than continuing them mm-hmm. and do you feel that there is a hierarchy of needs like that you know in NBC it's like here's the feelings here's the needs here's the feelings when needs are met here's the feelings when they're not met but here's the needs and you know we could even say it's not just the needs that humans need but like that life itself needs to survive um and so I'm thinking less about like a Maslow's hierarchy here and more like okay it's you and your child (laughs) and you know you have a need for um, expression or, you know, freedom or creativity, but your child has a need for connection or safeness or consistency or something like that. So does a child's need for a sense of connection, something that they can't actually easily get on their own, does that trump Mm -hmm. a parent's need for like rest? Just seems like sometimes Mm -hmm. that's kind of a a tough call. How do you, how do you grapple with that with NBC? Yeah. With your model of NBC. Right. Yes. Um, I guess firstly, I want to acknowledge sort of Maslow actually never used a hierarchy. It was management consultants that imposed that hierarchy on his ideas and he stole his ideas from the Blackfeet. Right. <laughs> so there, there's a, a long history there of, of, of that sort of that pyramid that we're familiar with. And so I, I've thought a lot about it for the years. And I think, you know, I've heard a lot of NVC practitioners say there is no conflict at the level of needs. And the only exception I've really been able to find to this is when we're in a monogamous relationship and we have a need for some certain kind of sexual expression that our partner is unwilling or unable to meet. And in the context of that monogamous relationship, it is not possible to go outside that relationship to get that need met. And of course, the structure of monogamy is one that we invented (laughs) and we put on relationships and we say it's not a real, quote unquote, real relationship if it's not monogamous. And of course, many other varieties of relationships exist in the world. And 
uh, I think that many of them are maybe even better than monogamy. <laughs> so um, I, I think that the key idea here is, is that there isn't a conflict at the level of needs. And the reason for that is there's always more than one way to meet a need. And very often we parents are actually the less flexible ones and we get attached to a certain way <laughs> that our need has to be met. And that it has to look like me sleeping in my bed undisturbed for eight hours a night. And if I don't get that, then I don't get enough rest. And then I'm a crummy parent the next day and I can't function and, and so on and so forth. Well, is it possible that we could bring some cognitive flexibility to this and imagine all of the different ways we can get rest, right? I recently talked with Mara Glatzel and uh, she talks about rest being any any activity you do that that brings you more energy than it takes you to do it and so if we can conceive of rest in that way then a whole lot of things become restful if we can see our child's maybe need for connection and see what are some restful ways that i can be close to them so they can feel connected and also i can take in more energy than i'm expending right now right those are the kinds of strategies we can use to work towards meeting two people's needs at the same time which is for me where the magic lies right when when we can meet multiple people's needs at the same time we raise children who go out into the world knowing how to do that, knowing that my need is just as important, no more, no less than yours, and we both deserve to get our needs met. And I don't believe white supremacy, patriarchy, capitalism can exist in a world where we all really believe that. Mm-hmm. 100%, 100%. The um, beauty of your book too is that it takes this idea of like, it's not just the list of feelings and needs, like you have the cupcake model and, you know, where it's like, here's the, like, you know, these are the main things we're leading with. This is my need. And then I get under that in my frosting level, I have like other needs. And then I have these like deeper needs that may not be as obvious to me. And it reminded me. Um, so when my kiddo was little, uh, we had the feelings and needs list on the fridge and, you know, they were fairly precocious reader. And so I think they were like seven years old or something. And I had this whole thing. It sounds so funny to say it now, but I had this whole thing about like feng shui in my house and my child's room was like in an area that was like important to me spiritually. I was like, this is my spiritual center or something. This is like almost 20 years ago in my more appropriative, spiritually appropriative era. And I was trying to negotiate with my child to be like, how can we keep your room clean? you know, cleaner, mm. please, how can we do this? And, you know, they're like seven and like a super genius creator. And they, it was like one of the first times I saw like, wow, did they ever get pissed at me? And they weren't a very emotionally angry person, but I could just see the set of the mouth and the jaw mm. and the, all the stuff. And they like kind of shut down. Right. And so we brought out the feelings and needs and I was like, okay, I'm sensing, I'm like missing your need here. And I showed them the list and they scanned the list for some time. And then they took their crayon and circled the word space and pushed the, the sheet across the, desk, the, the kitchen table to me. It was just like, boom, mic drop. Mm -hmm. like, <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, that. That actually totally makes sense to me. And, yeah. you know, like I actually at that point was like, oh no, I totally relate to your need. Your need actually makes so much sense. And I am able mm -hmm. to concede that like, yeah, this, 
I actually can fully support your agency here. And I love that you even told me in your like angry, silent protest <laughs> of like, I have a need for space. Boy, kiddo, can I totally relate to that? And so mm -hmm. I just like never got on them about it again. And it, I could really, I really benefited from having a deeper sense of my kids' needs. Do you, do you find yeah. parents sometimes have that like epiphany of like, whoa, kid, do I ever relate? <laughs> and when I want your need to be met. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, that that's where I think understanding the feelings part comes from. Right. And, and I think often I, the parents I work with tend to, they, they get on the same page. like, yes, I understand how you're feeling. Now we're going to jump right to what is the strategy that's going to fix this <laughs> and without understanding the need. And so, yes, your child had a need for space. And, and I would say also probably autonomy, right? Like I want to decide things that feel really important to me about my space. And sometimes when we understand another person's need, um, which the, the understanding of feelings kind of helps us to find that curiosity about what's happening for the other person, then we may, that, that understanding may help us to loosen something up in ourselves a little bit and say, oh yeah, I can see that that's important to you. And I want to help you meet that need. And now I can see that maybe, you know, the thing that I was asking you to do isn't as critical as I thought it was. Right. And then we can, we can find a path forward on, on whatever's the challenge, but also you may have still felt that, you know, this is really important to me. Maybe I, you know, I, I don't know, know a lot about Feng Shui, but I'm guessing there's sort of a sense of order there and um, sort of a, like a, a things feel right in the world. And um, there, and what we could look at is, other ways of meeting needs, right? Is there another space in the house that your child could have used as their space? And that, you know, if this, if this particular space is very important to you, they, and that's what we talk about multiple ways to meet a need, right? When we work at the level of needs, the potential options to find other ways to meet our needs become apparent in a way that they don't, when it just seems like we're fighting over whether you tidy your room or not. Yeah, 100%. And I'm sure there are many people listening who are already like, oh, I can see how this could work in my adult relationships. Like mm -hmm. one of the um, one of the sort of somatic practices that uh, in my Collapse 101 course is about learning to cultivate satisfiability and enoughness, which is so hard in capitalism, mm -hmm. for sure. And, yeah. um, and so we were just talking about how when we can cultivate that satisfiability and enoughness, we can very often like let go of how things are going to happen and open up to like other possibilities. And so when my husband and I have been negotiating like a big move recently, and we're like, you know, in the ideation phase, maybe we could do this, maybe we could do that. Well, part of cultivating satisfiability and enoughness is, is tending to the reflexive negation. And I know there was reflexive negation in my household growing up where it was like kind of an automatic no. And we even used mm -hmm. to be proud, like of when I parented my very small child, that we'd be like certain behaviors were an automatic no. And, mm. and like, now I'm like, oof, ouch, ah, <laughs> talk about like thought stopping, talk about like diminishing, talk about like stonewalling and and I would never want to do that now. So as we are trying to have this corrective experience, like in our marriage, but also with my now 19 year old, 
when an idea comes up that I that I can feel the reflexive negation in me of like, oh, that's stressing mm-hmm. me out. That's at my edge. <laughs> I want to be like, well, that wouldn't do that and just go right into critique. Instead, mm-hmm. what we've been training ourselves to do is be like, you know, how, under what conditions could we say yes? And yes. so we like come to this place where we're like, yes to moving. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yes, we are. We are yes to this idea. And we'll, we'll grow from there. What else we can say yes to, but we try to find the kind of common denominator of what can we say yes to. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And a, and a tool to get there with kids, right. Is firstly, you don't have to make a decision instantly. (laughs) A lot of times I think as parents, we're like, Oh yeah, they're asking me for this and I've got to decide right now. And so instead we can pause, we can say, just give me a minute to think about it. And then, um, maybe the next thing we can say is, I'm thinking about saying no, because I'm worried that dot, 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 Mm -hmm. I think dot, dot, dot might happen. How can we make sure that dot, dot, dot doesn't happen? And then you invite your child into the process, right? Essentially what you're doing there is you're uncovering your need, your need for their safety, your need for, you know, whatever them to eat a, you know, healthy meal, which is kind of linked to their safety. Um, And you're, you're articulating that and inviting them into this process of, Hey, I'm, I'm willing to help you meet your need for joy and play and whatever it is you're trying to do with jumping on the couch or whatever, assuming that that is safe and, you know, it's not going to break the couch. I'm willing to have you do that. I would like your help to help me meet my need as well. And then I can say yes, right? Which is where, which is where you're going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally collaborative decision yep. making. In our house, we call that dream mode, discussion mode, and decision mode. And that's mm. how I can like alert to my partner, to my child. Like it's like we can take the threat level down because I'm like, this is just discussion mode. And we don't uh-huh. need to make decisions or even if discussion uh-huh. of something I think is going to like stress them out because, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I have a, like little queer autistic kid. So when I'm like, it's just discussion mode, would you like to see the extended family? It's like a social thing. It's people you don't know well or something. And yeah. then they know like, okay, so there is a time horizon here, but it's not right now. I don't have to decide. And right. then other times I'll just be like, okay, dream mode. <laughs> and then they know that this is like, they are it, like, we're just, we're just spitballing here. Just like in, mm-hmm. in, in our wildest dreams, what do you think about spending like a family holiday together or something? And they can be like, well, you know, maybe if we were in like a, a different, maybe if we went to a neutral place, what maybe if, you know, and then we can just kind of ideate and there's no time horizon. So mm-hmm. I've been finding that is like a, also a good kind of signal of safeness before we even move to decision mode. <laughs> It's mm-hmm. like, and then we can all be like, okay, are we ready for decision mode? Um, yeah. This is something with my little neurodivergent kiddo that, and, and probably undiagnosed like other family members. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, it's, it can be good to like move towards that in a slower kind of pace, yeah. which I know a lot yeah. of parents of young kids maybe don't have time, but um, you know, we do the best we can. So, okay. Mm-hmm. Can we also talk about um, boundaries and limits? Mm-hmm. So you make a very important distinction in your book between those two things. And it reminded me of the public discourse that arose on the internet with um, that actor, Jonah Hill, and his um, ex who was a surfer, Sarah, I have to look this up, Sarah Brady. So what I noticed is a lot of people really seem to lack, well, certainly Jonah Hill seemed to lack of yeah. you know, some like critical pieces of information about the difference between boundaries and limits. And 
I think this feels like a really important skill for anyone, not just kids, but like even adults. And so if parents don't know the difference between boundaries and a limit, um, Mm -hmm. it seems like then those children may be more at risk of being in, you know, adolescent or adult relationships of coercive control or Mm -hmm. not proceeding in a consent-based way. Cause I was, I was astonished how many adults did not know the difference between a boundary and a limit and like how I I was just surprised at how much we had to explain about that. So um, tell us about the distinction you make and why it's so important to recognize like our motivations as parents when it comes to discipline and when we're applying boundaries and when we're applying limits. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't familiar with that whole fiasco. Uh, I had to look it up using the links that you helpfully provided. So thank you. Yeah. Um, I mean, and I don't think that the that situation is necessarily terribly uncommon, right? It, it happened in a public sphere with publicly known people. But I think that those kinds of interactions uh, are somewhat normal within a patriarchal culture where a man gets to sort of be the person in, in charge at the top of the family. Um, and so when we're when we're thinking about boundaries and limits, right, a limit is about trying to change somebody else's behavior. It's saying, you may not do that. You may not jump on the couch. When we're setting a boundary, what we're saying is what I am or I'm not willing to do. I am not willing to get up from the dinner table and get you the green spoon until I finished eating, right? I'm not saying you may not go and get the green spoon if you really want the green spoon. (laughs) I'm just saying that I am not willing to go and get that. And I work with a lot of parents who struggle, particularly female identifying parents who really struggle with setting limits because the message that we learned when we were little about boundaries is that uh, if you set a boundary with somebody, that means you don't love them anymore. Mm. And so the parents I work with, uh, you know, will, will lie with their kids to help them go to sleep each night, just absolutely seething with resentment at the moments that are being stolen from their self-care time, because that's lying there seething with, with resentment is preferable to them than the idea that they might set a boundary and in some way communicate to their child I don't love you, right? The thought of doing that is so terrifying that they would rather chronically have their needs unmet. And boundaries do not inherently communicate, I don't love you. Essentially, what we're doing when we're setting a boundary is saying, I can see that you have a need and I can see that I have a need. And right now, I just don't see a way that I can meet both of our needs. And so for right now, I'm going to prioritize my need. And I hope that in the future, one day that will change and I will be able to help us meet both of our needs. For right now, I'm going to prioritize me. And I'm not saying I'm not saying I reject you. Right. This is no judgment on you as a person. I'm not saying you're a terrible person. I'm just saying this thing that you're asking me to do right now is not meeting my need. And I see so much mainstream certainly parenting advice but even within the sort of gentle respectful air quotes parenting circles there's a fair bit of coercion there and one way that this tends to show up is in the advice to offer two choices and I actually did an entire podcast episode called why giving choices doesn't work and what to do instead and the reason that giving choices quote unquote doesn't work 
is because when we decide in advance, what are the two choices that you, my child, are going to have to make here? We're essentially saying, I don't care what your need is. Maybe I don't even know what your need is. I've decided that these two things that we're going to do, maybe I don't even know what my need is. So I can't really say they meet my need, but I'm just saying they're strategies that I think are going to be useful to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that is coercion, right? Because I haven't taken the time to understand what your need is. And this can, quote unquote, work with young children because they see the two choices and they're like, oh, I get to choose. This is cool, right? I want autonomy. But choices and autonomy are not the same thing. And eventually your child wises up to this and realizes this is not a real choice. Neither of these options really really meets my needs. And so then they resist and they push back and that's why it stops working. <laughs> and so instead, when we can... Uh, see what is the other person's need and what is our need, then we can suggest strategies that might meet both of our needs. And a couple of questions that I encourage parents to ask themselves, really, they're sort of, you know, questions to ask yourself is, what do you want the other person to do, firstly? And then the second piece is, what do you want their reason to be for doing it? And if that reason is because they're afraid of me, because they are, you know, they're worried that they're going to get punished because they want the reward I'm going to give them at the other end, then we're kind of in that coercive relationship. But if it's, if our answer is because I want them to know that by doing this, they can also meet their need, then we're in a power sharing relationship. And we have to have our kids practice this. I mean, we, we saw in the text that you, that you linked me to, this is what happens when we grow up not knowing how to set a boundary. You know, the first time another kid says to our kid, a five-year-old, you know, I'm not going to be your friend anymore if you don't steal that candy. They're going to be like, okay, everybody else says these are my choices. And so I, this is the choice I'm getting. And so I'm going to go ahead and, and steal it because I, I want to be your friend <laughs> and I have to be your friend to have that candy, right? Um, when they get into a sexual relationship and their partner says, you better do this sex act or I'm not going to love you anymore. Do we want them to have practice at saying that doesn't feel right to me? Or do we want them to, you know, not have that practice and just kind of, okay, well, I guess this is this is what I have to do to be in a loving relationship because it it feels like love, I guess. You know, boundaries are so important and they have to learn this from us now when they're young. Absolutely. And it speaks to um, unhooking from whiteness as well, right? Because mm-hmm. when we're like, you know, and this is your whole book, we're talking about dominance, and we're talking about power. And so when you say, here's your two choices, again, it's kind of like, um, you, you have just totally asserted this very narrow range for your convenience or your whatever it is. And the same dilemma comes up for us as we grow up, and we're like, hmm, whiteness, (laughs) like, I can either you know, keep perpetuating the supremacy culture, or I can kind of appease and make nice and sort of like try to, you know, um, make it better and okay for people or try to shield some people, but really my proximity to whiteness or my proximity to power that that's better to preserve, but we're never taught about saying, I would like another alternative. Thanks. Like Mm -hmm. these aren't, these aren't actually choices. This is just you saying, you will accept me if I behave within this narrow range. And if I don't, I'm a race trader, basically. Yes. And it's like, I'm okay with being a race trader, but boy, is that ever hard the first few times you do it? Because it's 
you know, it's almost like they don't want us to have that kind of agency, you know, Mm -hmm. but that seems like a very kind of, it's a mark of supremacy culture to be like, sure, you have choice, but only these two. Yeah, absolutely. The binary thinking, right? You're, you're with me and you think that I think the way that I do, you do the things the way I do them or you don't and you're out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. And, Mm -hmm. and the preservation of the existing power structure, those are absolutely inherent to white supremacy. And I draw on Timo Kuhn's work there. And then there's an anti-racist educator named Amanda Gross, who did some work to translate Timo Kuhn's work to a family context. And that's kind of the structure of the framework that I use in the book to understand how white supremacy shows up in families, which doesn't at all all look like do I talk with my kids about race do I have dolls of different races right yes we have to do that absolutely but also if we're doing those things and we're in this power over relationship with our children we're just perpetuating the systems right anyone who's ever sworn in front of their child and then said don't swear knows that their kid learns the lesson of our actions not the lesson of our words so our actions have to line up with what we're doing uh, with the world that we want to create and and that's what I'm hoping that the book enables people to do. Precisely. It does it very well. In fact, often when I was um, reading the book, I was like, this would be a really good book for a men's group <laughs> to read, to like learn <laughs> about patriarchy, because you're talking about dominance. You're talking about um, this this new way of thinking about power. I think it's new for many people who are in up power positions to think about how often they're taking for granted their up power position. A colleague of mine, Holly Trular, would often say, if you don't recognize or realize that you are the one in the up, like, or if you go into a room and you don't know who's in charge and who's got the up power, it's you. And not knowing that you're the one carrying the power is an abuse of power. And so I I was thinking about this as I was reading the book, like, okay, this is about parenting, but I feel like men who don't quite get patriarchy, anyone who doesn't quite get patriarchy could read this. Um, You're also talking about like dignity and Mm -hmm. I was thinking so much. I really, this, there's a part in the book where you're describing a mom named Winnie. And this is like in the boundary setting chapter. And basically Winnie was like, I've given up even trying to have a conversation um, with my partner because in our family, there's this culture of criticism that's prevailing. And it sounded like she tried all the things and was actually just at the point too, of like, I don't want to bring this up because I will become the target. I will become, I will be under attack. I don't, I'm, I'm at wit's end. I've tried everything. And now I'm just waiting for the divorce. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like I'm waiting until my kids get older so we can divorce. And even though we know that like the overall divorce rate is going down, um, we also know that 69% of American divorces in 2023 were initiated by women and the right the rate of the post child rearing divorce is increasing and i just feel like this is so sad to me you know there's like such a heartbreaking loss of like mutuality and reciprocity and it's like there's all these men out there in these hetero relationships that are missing it they are missing mm-hmm. it and so as i read this book i thought i wonder how much comes up with couples <laughs> in your classes or reading your book would they start to struggle um, because they haven't talked about the dominance inherent in their partnership. How yep. often do you kind of, are you working with people and you're like, so maybe what you actually need 
is like a course on patriarchy or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, yes, it comes up all the time, all the time. Um, And I think that it's heavily linked to the the idea that care work is not valued, right? Because it's not paid uh, in our in our capitalist society, any work that is paid is valued. Any work that is unpaid is not valued. And so because child rearing is not paid, it's not valued. And therefore it's not something that a man should get involved with, right? It's like, you know, it's the, 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 the work that is unrecognized and the managing the mental load of the family, of course, another aspect of it, managing the emotional climate of the family as well. When uh, the mother is kind of trying to keep the children under control so they don't irritate the father and prompt an outburst. I was actually in a parking lot here a few days ago in Vancouver and I was waiting and heard a, a couple and a child getting into a car next door. And, and the mother said to the toddler, you better get in your car seat before daddy gets really angry. And so, you know, we women, I think, can think of ourselves as the quote unquote victims of patriarchy, but we perpetuate it too, right? We are agents of this system. We pass this power relationship through and it acts through us. And I, I think that, yeah, it's it's really hard to see <laughs> because we've grown up in a dynamic where these power structures exist within our families. And so when you grew up, you know, as we most of us did, where the children are kind of at the bottom of the heap in the family and don't really get a say over anything and you're told your needs are too big and too much and you're too loud and you're too everything for me to cope with, stop making your needs known. And then when you do that enough, I will reward you with belonging in our family. And that is how our parents with the best possible intentions shaped us to function within this white supremacist, patriarchal capitalist culture. And so when we go out into a relationship, of course, of course we replicate that (laughs) exact same environment. Why wouldn't we? How could we recognize patriarchy at work? You know, it's, it's, it's impossible. It's like, I think of the, um, the joke of the, the two fish swimming along and uh, they're just chatting to each other and a fit another fish is coming the other way. Hey, hey, how's the water? And the other two look at each other like, what's water? (laughs) (laughs) right we're swimming in it so much that it's so hard to even see that the water's there um and i i think that uh you know i think about uh i don't know if i'm saying their name right zon villain i think uh is a writer that i follow on facebook and writes a lot about uh, the intersection of patriarchy and relationships and parenting and marriages and um and has written that we're kind of sold this view of what our life should be like as women right that it involves finding a partner and getting married and having children and having a house and and i think that if we knew what it was going to be like <laughs> maybe fewer of us would choose to do it would have chosen to do it and so so if you're you know male identifying listening to this thinking well i don't know you know i think the your carmen your idea of I walk into a room and I don't know who has the power here, then it's probably me (laughs) is, I mean, that's a pretty valid question to be asking ourselves. And and there's a lot more digging from there because the person in power is typically the person who is not seeing everybody else's needs and everybody else is hiding their needs. So as not to inconvenience the person in power links so much there between patriarchy and white supremacy and the defensiveness that keeps that whole thing going. Um, and, and so, yeah, it's, it's an absolutely massive, massive challenge. Mm -hmm. And like, 
I have so much compassion for all of us who are trying to learn about this because it is intentionally invisibilized. Like patriarchy is invisibilized for men. So like part of me sometimes is like, hey, no harm, no foul. They were like, <laughs> they had no idea, right? Mm -hmm. It's like telling people that, you know, um, there's no outer planets. There's just the sun and the moon. And then like one day you're like, just so you know, <laughs> there's this whole other there was a planet, by the way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and like, I feel for people who, you know, it's like, oh my God, I had no idea. And so mm -hmm. there's probably a lot of parents right now who are like, oh, I've never thought about power in right. the parent-child relationship until perhaps adolescence when we talk yeah. more about power struggles. But even then, just the idea that it, like we accept that it has to be a struggle and that they differentiate by rebelling or that sort of thing. It's like, but what if we approached it as though everyone has inherent dignity and worth and agency and autonomy and like, and from the moment they're born, they, mm -hmm. they deserve that dignity that they don't have to reach a certain developmental task to earn it, that yeah. we should just be endowing all of us with power. Like that's like pretty mind blowing for a yes. lot of people. So really if we can like bring us along to adolescence a little bit, like, again, you don't really, I don't think you specifically are talking about, um, consent in the book though everything you're talking about of course is about moving in a consent-based way yeah. but how would you say if a person were to parent like in this style beyond power and kind of recognizing power dynamics how does this parenting approach translate do you think into adolescence what have you seen with parents who've been doing it for a while since adolescence yeah. is the time when kids are experimenting with decision-making and behaviors that sometimes do carry much higher natural consequences. Yeah. Yeah, sure. And so I guess, you know, I think before, before, before we go there, I just want to offer a nugget on uh, something you said about how, you know, patriarchy is hidden. And I think that's so linked to the idea of white supremacy being hidden. And um, I think to, uh, you know, the time when I learned that I have white supremacy and uh, it was on a, I was listening to a podcast, a, a now defunct podcast called how to get away with parenting. And the, the host is black. She's a friend of mine now. And she said, black parent cannot walk with their child into a grocery store, holding their own food because someone might think they stole it. And I, I vividly remembered when my daughter was two picking her up from school with an ear infection and being on the floor in Target, her sprawled in a full-on meltdown or stuff all over the place, me ripping open boxes of Tylenol that I haven't paid for and you know, trying to get her dosed up with pain medication did not even cross my mind to be afraid for my safety. In no way was I ever afraid. And that that was hidden from me until that was revealed to me, right? And so I carry that analogy across that we're not blaming men. We're not saying, you know, this is your fault. We're saying, hey, <laughs> Can we have a conversation about this? Because it's real. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Totally. And the corollary to that, which is like the epistemic privilege of like, it's not invisible to the people right. of the global majority, just like patriarchy exactly. is not invisible to, you know, people who are not men. So yeah. like, and so this is why they should believe us because, you know, black people know more about white people than white people do. 
women know more about men than men do, you know? So yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. It's like, oh, it, be, it becomes revealed. And then you realize, oh shit, everybody knows this except me is what yeah. it feels like, right? So yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so, th so then we get to the, the teenage years, right? And and I think that we have this idea in our culture that teenage years equals rebellion, right? Equals differentiation from parents equals them doing their own thing, disconnecting from us. And, and I really fundamentally reject that premise. I think that our children, when they are young, when we parent them using conventional methods, they learn, my parent doesn't know me. My parent doesn't understand me. My parent doesn't care what my needs are, right? It may seem like that from their perspective, even though from our perspective, we may say, I love you, right? You're my child. I love you. If their need is not being met in the way that they want to receive it, right? Think about an assess-hep partnership where the woman comes home at the end of the day and vents and just wants to, you know, just talk. And the and the male's like, well, you should have done this. You can, you do this to fix it. And the woman's like, I just wanted you to listen. <laughs> if the, the child is not receiving this love in the way that they want to receive it and, and feeling seen and known and understood, I believe that's where the resistance comes from. That's where they start, start to shut down because they know that we are not capable, either incapable or unwilling of seeing and meeting their needs. And so they're, when they're young, there's not much they can do about it. They resist a little bit. They dig their heels in, they stall, whatever. By the time they get to teenage years, they realize you can't control me anymore because I'm as big as you are. I can go out. You can can't really stop me. When I was younger, I thought you could, and now I know you can't. And so I really think that that's where the teenage rebellion comes from. And that if we raise children who from early in their lives know that no matter what happens, we will try to understand their need, even when they're doing something that drives us up the wall that we've told them not to do, that the reason they're doing that is because it meets their need. If we will try to understand that and also try to understand what our need is, why did we say no to this thing? Is there, coming back to the early conversation, is there a way I could say yes to this, right? How can we meet both of our needs here? Then children are not going to rebel because there's nothing to rebel against when your needs are met. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's so great. Um, yeah, I, I I totally agree with uh, there's this like notion of what differentiation looks like. And I don't think it has to be mm -hmm. um, so fraught with conflict. I think it could just right. be self-actualization, like differentiation, like you are a different whole person and I'm fascinated and I can't wait to hear what you think about things and <laughs> what a different world it would be if we felt seen and secure and well met and matched throughout our lives. Instead of, like you said, that sense of like, you don't see me, you have no right. idea who I am. And we've lived under the same roof for 15 years. You have no idea yeah. who I am. Yeah. yeah. So, and if we think back to our own adolescences, most of us went through adolescence thinking that. <laughs> yeah. Oh God. That's the model we have. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, okay, there's a lot of anxiety about parenting, about doing it well, about not fucking up our kids. And yet I, I think so much of this anxiety is just masquerading as concern for our kids when it's often as much or more about concern about how others are perceiving us as a parent, mm -hmm. how we are yeah. performing parenting. And that could be friends, that could be our own parents. But even like with our kids, if our kids are not behaving, if they are languishing by capitalist norms or whatever it is, it's like, what kind of parent must I be if my kid mm -hmm. is depressed or my kid is, you know, not 
thriving. Um, and it, this, of course, is like just white supremacy at play, that perfectionism, that desire for proximity to power and the fear that like my kid might not make it in this like you know you know dog eat dog kind of world um it's like a lot to unpack when you're trying to just like get the kids backpacks ready and like out the door um mm -hmm. so how how did you personally kind of be like how did you come to this idea of like there has to be a different way <laughs> to do this but it's gonna challenge my identity, it's going to challenge my beliefs, it's going to challenge me to look at how I am as like a citizen of the world, it's going to challenge my relationships mm -hmm. with my family of origin. How did you personally come to this piece where you're tending your child, you're tending your inner child, you're tending the world, you're tending all this stuff? How did you do that? Really, the only answer that I have to that question is that I really think it's related to my autism. And I know that sounds really strange. Uh, and thinking back to that person who emailed me uh, and said, you know, I knew I'd known you were autistic for a year. And they said something like, you know, do, does such a deep dive into the research, right? The special interests that autistic people usually have and willingness to buck social norms. And there was one other thing as well, I forget. And, and they said, you know, these are all characteristics of my favorite people. <laughs> That's really cool. And so, you know, at the time I hadn't realized I was doing that really. Like I hadn't put all the pieces together in my head. And I think the thing that makes it easier for me, uh, and I assume this is related to the autism, is it's not very hard for me to learn a concept in my head and then take it on and live it relatively quickly. And I think that a lot of people really struggle with that, right? A lot of parents that I work with really struggle with that. And, um, and certainly there are areas in my life when I do struggle with it, but particularly related to parenting, for some reason, it's that part is just not challenging for me. Um, the bigger the bigger thing I struggle with is things that I don't understand fully yet, right? Like if I don't understand why I'm doing something or why another person is doing something, then it's really, really challenging for me. When I think I understand it, then, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it's, it's much easier for me to take action. And essentially what I'm doing is kind of linking my personal growth, my healing, which is linked to my ability to show up as a parent, which is linked to my alignment with my values and i'm ultimately trying to in whatever i'm doing take action that's aligned with my values as much of the time as possible and so um an example of that would be we are homeschooling right my my daughter's nine now and we're homeschooling and uh, i i do struggle with how to talk with parents about this my autism makes social communication challenging sometimes i don't always uh, say things in a way that other people can can receive and so sometimes when i talk about school uh, parents particularly liberal parents who see schools as kind of an equalizer um are, are not so receptive to the way that i think about it which is that school frankly is i think an agent of socialization our families are agents of socialization our schools are agents of socialization and I think and I think that sometimes parents see this when they first go into school there's always this spate of posts in, in parenting Facebook groups where they're like whoa behavior management systems this is terrible where where's the research I can show to my child's teacher to say this is awful and the homework there's so much where's the research to say that homework doesn't benefit anyone and then by 
you know, the, the end of the first semester, we're it's just kind of, okay, nothing really changed. I guess we can live with it. I guess it's not so bad. This is the agent of socialization. And sort of going back to the, the fish example, I often think of myself as sort of like a flying fish and, and with an enormous amount of effort, we can paddle above the water a little bit and see, hey, we're all in water. And then whoop, back down I go again. <laughs> and I'm swimming in the white supremacy of the patriarchy, the capitalism with the rest of us. And then sometimes I get myself out again and I can see it from the outside. So that's sort of a, a roundabout way of answering the question, but that's sort of the, the answer that I have. Okay. So that's so interesting. So here you are as a person who, you know, you're a high achiever, you attended Berkeley and Yale, you have multiple master's degrees. You can see though how how that can um, perpetuate the perfectionism of uh, and like the supremacy culture of kind of like acquisition, acquisition of knowledge, the worship of the word, all that kind of stuff. How is it for you to grapple? Like to, we're inside these systems. You're also okay. recognizing neurodivergence, but you don't want to perpetuate <laughs> that kind of system. How do you grapple with that? Yeah, I mean, on on the schools, um, I, I I got into Berkeley. I got a full ride into Berkeley back when it was still relatively cheap. And I mean, there there's a well known thing, particularly among racialized students, that there's kind of this hardship Olympics, right? If you can share that you've had a hard time in your essays you're much more likely to get in. And you know, for those who have read the preface of my book, you'll know that by the time I got to 24, I hadn't been to school yet. There was a marriage in there. There was some, you know, divorce, some, some, some struggle in there. And so, you know, I, I really think that's basically what got me into Berkeley. So it wasn't anything about me being a perfect student. Um, obviously, uh, I, I used to, when I worked for a management consulting company, there were people there who would introduce me as this is Jen. She went to Yale. It's <laughs> <was> like, okay, <laughs> but I went to the forestry school, which takes 25% of the people who apply, right? This is, this is not Yale college. <laughs> this is much <laughs> less selective. So, um, I actually, I don't suffer from perfectionism. I, 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 if I get like 85% of the way there, I'm good with that. I really am. There are other aspects of white supremacy that I struggle with much more. Uh, for example, a, a fear of open conflict, right? Conflict is, is very, very difficult, partly be again, because of the autism, because I can't react fast enough. <laughs> I don't <laughs> fully understand what's happening in the conflict situation, um, making judgments about situations right? Those, those are much more struggly for me and the ways that I'm working personally to dismantle white supremacy rather than the perfectionism, which doesn't affect me as much, I don't think. Mm, mm, interesting. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Okay. So you talked about your, the first chapters of your book in the opening of your book, you share about how also your mother died when you were 10 years old and you mm -hmm. learned later it was from complications um, related to anorexia nervosa and your relationship with your father was tense. And it also was with your mother before she died. Um, yeah. This was the part I have to say where I was like, Oh, she's autistic. When you were describing <laughs> really? this. Yeah. Really? Yeah. What, what made you think that? The way you you had a flat affect after your mom died and the way you kind of went into your own world and mm -hmm. um, also how your autonomy, kind of like a need for autonomy spiked when there was no, um, even though your relationship with your mother was was tense, mm -hmm. it, it was a, a holding, it was a, a consistent pattern. So now you had this inconsistency and I was like, oh, mm -hmm. this is a child who has had a major pattern interruption mm -hmm. and it's like, trying to take control of this pattern yeah and so <laughs> okay. 
anyway, I was like, oh, little Jen, <laughs> like you're mm -hmm. just a little bean. This is really yeah. hard for you. So I'm um, looking back now, of course, you're an adult and you're an educator who teaches about power and rank and privilege and parent-child relationships. But there's this like clear conflict of values that you illuminate in your book and in your home. And I was very curious. Now you can look at it and be like, oh, that's a clear conflict of values. But you're 10 <laughs> year old inside. You're mm. 10 year old at that time. What was your need? If you could like mm. get kind of into what was what would how would your 10 year old self have described what you actually needed from your dad yeah. in the world at that time? I mean, I think it's it's ultimately the same as any of us would answer, and that is the need to be seen and known and understood for who we really are. I think that's all that any of us really wants. And yeah, for for sure, my mom did not understand me. Um, she wanted a needy child. <laughs> she wanted a child who she, you know, it was almost like a doll. I think that she could take care of and who would love her. And and of course, she got me. And this <laughs> and I was well, very she clearly you know, cared it, it, about social norms. Sorry to interrupt. She, yes, she, with anorexia nervosa, she yes. cared about social norms. She cared about that stuff. And here you are bucking yeah. the norms and not caring yes. about that stuff. Yes, sorry, caring. Yeah, about. yeah, and 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 so I didn't respond to her in the way that she responded, right? And this was read at the time as independence, right? Jen is an independent child, and of course, it was it was the autism that was there all along, and. Um, you know, she then she had my sister and and was always super close with super close with my sister. And I I didn't know what was wrong with me. Right. Like, why was I not close with her? Why would she brush my sister's hair, but not mine? Um, why? Why would my sister get hugs and I wouldn't? Uh, and I didn't know how to make it better. And I mean, I think I was starting to resent her. I, I remember, you know, she used, she had this habit of saying, you know, what would you do without me when she'd done something for us? And I would think to myself, well, a lot more than I do now, <laughs> right? So there was definite seeds of resentment there. Oh my God, and um, the, oh my God, the guilt trip. I yeah. need a moment. What would you okay. do without me? It's like, yeah. oh my God, having to caretake and like mm -hmm. reinforce your mother's sense of self. Yep. I'm so sorry. That's like way too much for a kid. Yeah. Sorry. I cut you off again. That just That's okay. That's okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Yes. Yes. You would have done a lot um, more. And, and I didn't know all that, of course. Right. All I knew was that I didn't fit. <laughs> and I, even if I could have articulated this and put it into words, there's no way I could have ever said it to her because of that power over dynamics. So, yeah. So in a way, you know, sometimes I, have friends who you know I'll, I'll say what did you do this weekend oh I went shopping with my mom and I'll be like oh that's that's a thing isn't it <laughs> sometimes people get together with their moms and they do things like that and and I miss that but I think I miss what it could have been like not what it actually was like or would have been like mm -hmm. um and my dad I have fewer memories when I was younger of course um when she was gone, we lost the intermediary, right? She had been the intermediary in that patriarchal relationship and now she's gone and now it's he and I. And, and there are some anecdotes in the book about uh, how that started to show up, that power, power dynamic started to show up. And, and I know that he tried to care for us and he was doing the absolute best he could within these social structures and within the difficulties he'd experienced in his life, but he didn't know how to do it without using these power over tools. And I mean, 
Our relationship today is not amazing. I would say he he's he's read the preface, the introduction in the first chapter. He's told me he's not going to read the rest. And he has basically told me that it's a load of shit. <laughs> oh, wow. He should have read the rest and just skipped the beginning then. <laughs> well, I wanted him. him to read the preface for accuracy, right? Like I didn't want to say anything that was blatantly untrue. And he made a couple of factual, small factual corrections. Turns out Essex is slightly to the uh, east of London, not directly to the north. <laughs> But um, okay. but yeah, he he fundamentally disputes the idea that our our world is run by these social forces, and mm -hmm. so he he I think took it as you know I'm blaming him for the way I turned out, which is not at all what I said. What I said mm -hmm. is he was doing the best he could within these crummy social systems, and uh, maybe he would have been able to show up differently, which would have enabled me to show up differently if these systems hadn't been in place, which is kind of pointless to me. Oh, a hundred percent. And oh man, it's too bad. He missed out. He's missing out, Jen. I'm sorry about that. But even, you know, I can imagine, you know, one of the conversations that um, autistic folks or parents of autistic children uh, are, are sort of talking about a lot more these days is, um, well, so here's the, here's already the supremacy culture and the dominance of the language mm -hmm. of like kind of a patriarchal medical system, the uh, pathological demand avoidance, which yeah. of course is like more accurately described. I'll have to look up who, who coined this term, but pervasive desire for autonomy. And mm -hmm. so there you were, your little autistic self <laughs> having this like very strong need for like not only to be seen, but probably for like autonomy for to, to be, um, yeah, have some agency in your world and to be seen for who you really are, be known. Yeah. And, uh, you know, back in the day, that was just, you know, just rebellion or a behavior disorder or what have you, or what, did, what did they call it? And so often for boys again, um, Oppositional defiant disorder. Oppositional yeah. Defiant disorder. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And for me, of course, I turned inward and it turned into anorexia myself. So, um, you know, that, that, that inability to be seen and known and understood when everything felt out of control, right? My dad's getting remarried to somebody who didn't like me at all. <laughs> I don't think it would be a stretch to say she actually hated me. I had no control over the external circumstance. And so, so yeah, that, that turned inward. And when I couldn't control anything else, I could control what I ate. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, thank you for sharing that. Um, mm. there, you also talk in the book, uh, another example of somebody um, uh, experiencing that kind of dilemma of like, I would rather starve myself than yeah. like, I, I would, I would rather starve myself than have you dictate what I'm going to eat and when, and even though yeah. this isn't good for me and it's, I've worked with many um, young people who have disordered eating. And I'm sure the parents think that like what I'm doing is like essentially, well, it's mysterious, not useless, but it's mysterious, but essentially I'm like, so tell me what you're mad about. Like, just tell mm -hmm. me what you're mad about. That's like how, where yeah. we start. And like, we literally could just spend session after session with like, and I'm mad about this and I'm pissed about that. And like, yeah. these are all the ways that I have had my no violated or not recognized. Okay. And I would yeah. rather like have this little place of agency than, mm -hmm. than nothing at all. So, um, yeah. I don't, I don't think of disordered eating as an anxiety disorder or as any of those things. It's, it's a, it's, it's a pervasive desire for autonomy. Yeah. 
and alcoholism, drug use, all those things as well, right? Are essentially a, a person saying, I want to belong to somebody and I don't. And 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 they're just different coping mechanisms, in my opinion, for totally. all of all of that hurt. And totally. and instead of we in, we try and medicate the the symptoms instead of addressing the real hurt that's there underneath. Totally, beautifully said. I want to belong to somebody who fully receives me just as I am. Yes. No critique. No, you know, no notes. <laughs> this is I take you. You know. Yeah. So as we're wrapping up, I'm curious how you deal with grief and with rage. Like what are your go-to strategies as an autistic person, as a person who's probably very accustomed to be to being like competent and being able to, that your problems are figure outable if you just think about it long enough or you research enough, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So when you get to the place where it's like the big, you can't keep the big feelings at bay anymore. Mm-hmm. How do you cope with grief and with rage? Mm, I think for me that that mostly comes out as fatigue. Mm-hmm. And because I will tend to, I mean, in a capitalist system where work is is rewarded <laughs> i will work harder right and and also i do i i think capitalism so badly that i'm working towards dismantling it as fast as i can myself so i offer sliding scale pricing the book is actually available on a gift economy basis on my website at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash book and what I'm realizing as I'm as I'm living this is that somebody always pays the price in a, in an economic system, and usually as a white person living in a euro you know eurocentric country, I am the person who is relatively near the top of that heap, and so I don't pay the price very much. But when I institute these kinds of systems, I pay the price more, right? I share more of that burden, and uh, and so there there is this pressure to always do more to make sure that we can pay the mortgage, to make sure that we can pay the whatever this month, and and that you know I think that maybe the the fatigue maybe it masks it in some ways, maybe, <laughs> uh, maybe it masks the the grief and, and the shame and all the rest of it. Uh, but the fatigue is sort of the, the, the dominant thing there for me. And so the, the practices that I use are one thing I try first thing in the morning when I wake up and I'm, you know, inherently not doing anything other than lying in bed when I wake up and I try and remind myself, I'm a person who has intrinsic value just for being alive, even though I'm not producing anything in this very moment right now. <laughs> so that that's one little nugget. Another one is just to go outside, just to be anywhere outside, preferably with my family and, you know, exploring a beach, tide pools, whatever, you know, those kinds of places are really nourishing and restorative to me. And then the third tool is actually one that I learned from Dr. Chris Niebauer, who wrote an awesome book called No Self, No Problem. And it sort of links Buddhist ideas with neuroscientific research. And an analogy that he draws is when you're watching your kid's soccer game and you're seeing these little kids kicking a ball up and down a field and you know that this game has zero significance in the grand scheme of the world. And so you can kind of hold that insignificance in one hand, but it doesn't prevent you from getting invested enough in the game that you can cheer your child on, <laughs> right? So I'm I'm sort of invested enough that I am trying as hard as I can to change these systems for myself, for my child, for your child, for all of our children. 
And at the same time, trying to hold it with that sense of lightness that what's going to happen is going to happen. <laughs> and my impact may not be very great. And that will be okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you've probably made a huge impact, certainly on um, the folks who've been working with all this time. And now it's going to spread even farther and wider with your book, <laughs> Parenting Beyond Power. Thank you so much for sharing with us today, Jen. And I, I yeah. am happy to amplify such a great message. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. This episode has so many links in the show notes. So you're going to find the show notes in your podcast player or at numinouspodcast.com. But honestly, I think the most important link is the one to access Jen's book, Parenting Beyond Power. So I'll make sure that's at the top of the list and uh, you'll just hit the link, scroll partway down the page, and you'll see that there's two different options to access the book in gift economy format, either through a monetary exchange or a non-monetary exchange. It's really fabulous. I will say this, the author's notes in this book alone are worth the cover price. Um, And I bet you can think of like a few people who should read it. And so I strongly encourage you to Uh, share this episode on social, share the book with friends and neighbors and family. It means so, so, so much to authors when you share their work and um, especially when you give it a nice review. It helps the book find more people, find the right audience, but it also like reaches that author's editors and publishers. It signals to the people in power that they should you know, give these authors a chance to expand on these ideas and produce more good work. So um, super appreciate good reviews. A book well-received doesn't just open doors for the author, though. It it helps inform public discourse. It helps shape culture. So especially in a book like this, Parenting Beyond Power, it really means a lot when you share someone's work. Never underestimate the power of social proof. And so with that, my listener shout out today is once again a reader shout out. This time it's to someone uh, called Angel's Mom, uh, who left a review for my book, The Spirited Kitchen, Recipes and Rituals for the Wheel of the Year uh, on Amazon. They gave it five out of five stars, titled it Lovely. Lovely book with a lot of good info. This one will go on my shelf of favorites and be used often. That's it. That's perfect. Angel's mom aced the assignment. Just five stars and a kind word. And that makes the algorithm happy and and makes me just delighted. So thank you, Angel's mom. I super duper duper appreciate it. Hey, um, sidebar, my birthday is October 28th and I am holding a vision of hitting 100 happy reviews on Amazon, amazon amazon.com or .ca. I know what we think about Amazon, but like please refer to my notes half a minute ago. Um, I'm thinking about this 100 review goal. It's totally arbitrary, but it is the one year anniversary of the publication day of The Spirited Kitchen. So um, that's the vision I'm holding for October 28th. Also that day is Witches New Year that day. This annual event is happening again uh, this year on Saturday. October 28th, 2023. We're having a cozy retreat day with five speakers and seven sessions all online. There's recordings. Uh, The sessions include 
some ancestral veneration with special attention to non-linear lineages, plus the astro outlook for 2024 and more if you want to know what the astrology is going to be like. So just make sure you're on my newsletter to receive the announcement when tickets go on sale. Sign up for my newsletter at carmenspaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care.